This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Honey Stinger, making fuel for athletes of all kinds using delicious honey and organic ingredients. One of those athletes is extremely laid-back ultra runner Courtney DeWalter. So every day I wake up and basically I just decide where I'm going to go, how far I'm going to go, and, uh, and then I let my legs and body and brain decide how big the day is going to be. If you don't know Courtney by name, maybe you know this theory she inspired. That in super ultra-long distance races, running becomes entirely mental. And once it gets to that point, women have an advantage. The idea came up when Courtney started winning a bunch of races. And now people want to know, what's her secret? And I also, I read that you uh, you run with a toothbrush. Uh, just those little disposable ones. You know, some of the races I do are over 200 miles and it takes me multiple days and you're just you are taking in a lot of things like quesadillas and pizza and stuff and so a little scrub of your teeth can feel really good going into day two like to remind yourself that you're still a human I think. (laughs) In addition to being incredibly laid back for a world-class athlete Courtney is a member of Honey Stinger's Hive an inclusive community of all kinds of athletes that's all about learning and helping each other reach personal goals. Yeah, so I applied for the Hive because I use Honey Stinger products. I specifically like the waffles and the chews. And because I was already using them, I applied to be a part of the Hive, which you know brought me into the fold of this community of people who also use Honey Stinger products. The Hive is full of runners, bikers, kayakers, and climbers, and people who do a little bit of everything. It's got both recreational and serious athletes, and people like Courtney, who run seriously but treat it like it's recreation. Find out more about joining the Hive at honeystinger.com sponsorship. From Outside Magazine and PRX, these are Dispatches. Stories from our writers in the field. Hey, Sam. Hey, Peter. Everyone, let me introduce you to Sam Evans-Brown, host of the Outside In podcast at New Hampshire Public Radio, uh, fellow last name hyphenate, and friend and occasional collaborator with the Outside Podcast. And you are Peter Frick Wright, and you host uh, the Outside Podcast, to which people are listening right now. Yes. Yes, I am. Uh, But you're actually going to be the the central storyteller today. I'm just along for the ride. That is the case. Uh... So, Pete, you, you live out in Portland, Oregon, and, and you surf, right? Yes. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a dedicated surfer, but as such, you'd think I would be better at it. <laughs> Do you surf? I have surfed maybe a half dozen times, uh, mostly in Maine in the fall, which means a lot of neoprene. Uh, and it also means I've never had what I think is a, a rite of passage for surfers, which is a shark encounter. Yeah. I have. So I like a lot of learning to surf comes from talking with surfers about surfing. And there's a certain amount of like, everyone has a shark story, um, but they all sort of begin the same way of just like, I was out there and I just kind of felt a tingle on the back of my neck that I couldn't explain. And I looked around like between sets and there was nothing different, but like, you know, there was, there was something like, it's just this sort of like sense and they call it out here, like, they call it the sharky feeling. Hmm. Um, 
And like when you describe, you know, what's the surfing like in Oregon? Well, it's cold, dark, and sharky. Because <laughs> it's just a feeling that you get. Yeah. The thing that to me is funny is that by all rights, it, it, it seems like we should be scared of sharks. Like they're undeniably predators. They can swim at 30 miles an hour. Like you can't see them coming when you're in the water. And all that's scary. And as someone who lives in a part of the world that has been shark free for decades, it seems to me like fear of sharks is rational. Well, it's it's totally rational on like a personal level. Um, I mean, they're huge. They regrow teeth at a constant, like constantly, they're constantly regrowing teeth because they use them so much. But on another level, being afraid of sharks is stupid because when you actually look at the numbers, you're just not going to be bit by a shark. I mean, it's so rare, even in sharky places. But isn't that one of those things that's like you can see the statistic, but the question is, can you actually know it? Can like can you turn off that that deep reptile part of your brain that is afraid of predators? Depends on how the waves are. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the time, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know where people are having a hard time doing that right now is Cape Cod. And while shark attacks are rare, last year one study says there were 53 unprovoked shark attacks in the U.S. That's more than any other country in the world. Last year was the first fatal shark attack in the state since 1936. And the whole region is, is kind of experiencing a full-blown freakout. It was the first deadly shark attack in Massachusetts in more than 80 years. Now, whenever there's a shark spotted, the beaches shut down. And whenever the beaches shut down, it makes the news. On the beaches of Cape Cod, Massachusetts, it is Shark Week, quite literally. More than a dozen great white sightings in just the past two days, over 100 in the past month. And the peak season is just getting started. I personally think the return of great white sharks to the waters of Cape Cod is one of the most covered natural phenomena of the new millennium. In the past few months, there have been stories in The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The New Yorker, essentially every national outlet you can think of. Uh, But today, we are going to tell you what's really going on out there. Or at least what I think is really going on there. (laughs) (laughs) Scientists don't know, but Sam does. And I'm going to tell you. Last year, two people were attacked by sharks on Cape Cod, and one died. The result has been a media frenzy that really you have to see to believe. But when you look past the headlines, the situation on the Cape is really a clash between these two stories we tell ourselves about sharks. Is this about us learning to live with fear? Or is it about whether it's possible for us to get over our fear? Okay, Pete, so so you're a West Coast guy, yes? Yes. Born and raised and lived and never left for more than a vacation. Have you been to Cape Cod? No. Well, um, where is Cape Cod? <laughs> <laughs> Massachusetts. If you look at a map of the US, it's that like hook that's jutting out into the ocean uh, at the at the bottom of New England. Gotcha. Gotcha. No, definitively have not been there. 
Okay, so in your imagination, what is Cape Cod like? As someone who like only g- generally knows where it is, uh, it's full of chowder <laughs> and uh, <laughs> fishermen. <laughs> um. <laughs> Cape Cod, I think it's it's a place I I can't help but love, but also kind of hate it because it's so goddamn quaint Mm. like they're all these very well-kept little downtowns surrounded by historic homes with like immaculate cedar shingles for siding um but it also it's very touristy the the stat that i've read is that it's like four or five million tourists go there each year and so it's got that feeling that a lot of places with a tourist economy have like nothing's really real yeah i mean it it just feels like a service economy but as you point out, Cape Cod's economy did used to be all about fishing. I mean, there were so many cod that colonial farmers and, and native people used to use the fish for fertilizer. Oh, wow. The waters were rich. They were abundant with all kinds of, all kinds of wildlife and marine life. Um, one of my interesting tidbit facts that I love is that they were not common, but there used to be walrus even in the Gulf of Maine in the what? southern. Yes. <laughs> to give us the long view here, this is Andrea Bogomolny, who heads up the Northwest Atlantic Seal Research Consortium. So I grew up on the West Coast, um, and then I moved out 20 years ago almost to the East Coast to start a master's degree and fell in love with Woods Hole, and I fell in love with this place, and I stayed. And so when Europeans first arrived here in New England, there were great white sharks. Correct. And, you know, we we look to the written record or images, right, in order to document what we see. And one of my, my favorites is Thoreau, who wrote Cape Cod and described, you know, such an abundance of sharks that why would you go swimming in those waters? Hmm. They were definitely here and they were in great abundance as well. But as the scale of fishing started to ramp up, that abundance started to disappear. And it happened fairly early, like even before steam-powered boats and fine mesh nets and factory trawlers, all these things that we associate with overfishing. Back when it was just sailboats, fishermen started to notice that there were fewer fish. And so in response, in 1888, they started to kill seals. So seals were bounty hunted. So the state of Maine and Massachusetts put bounties on seals. And so you could bring a seal nose into your town hall, either a dollar or five dollars a nose kind of thing. Um, and it did a, a very good job of wiping out all gray seals. At a dollar a nose for about a decade around the turn of the century, Maine and Massachusetts were paying out for a thousand or two thousand or even as many as five thousand seals a year. Uh, and it was as the seals started to disappear that the great whites disappeared too. So this was this brief ecological anomaly in the state of Massachusetts. I mean, the the seal bounties ended in 1962. What are some things that happened in the, in those intervening years? So so 1962 to today is when is when the seals came back. Like what maybe we could sort of speculate wildly here. Sure. So they stopped offering money for killing them. Right. Um the I mean the whole environmental movement started around 62, 66. Yeah. Um with Silent Spring, uh, what else would they do? There was there was the Endangered Species Act, but interestingly, neither neither seals or great white sharks have were ever listed. Hmm. But there was the Marine Mammal Protection Act in 1972. It made it a crime to kill a seal. Okay, wow, what a turnaround for the seals. Yeah, and there was but there was one other event that actually had nothing to do with the seal recovery that that happened in between. Uh, I don't know this. The... Oh, they made Jaws. Yeah, they made Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen Jaws? Yes. 
uh, for in, in my formative years. This is funny. I had actually never seen it until two years ago, which when I was reporting the story and just sort of poking around, I discovered put me in this tiny minority that four out of five Americans has seen the movie Jaws. Yeah, well, it's not. I mean, have you never had cable TV? <laughs> like, how do you avoid? Have you, like, or, or, you know, you're, you're probably someone who's just never been home sick from school. <laughs> But when I finally did watch it, it's a really good movie. Oh, yeah. Good, good movies have very clear enemies and complications. And, like, there's nothing more simple or uncomplicated than a shark. They got to get the shark. And, th- and that really is set up in this one very striking scene, which is Captain Quint's monologue. Japanese submarine slammed two torpedoes into our side, Chief. He was coming back... From the island of Tinian Delady just delivered the bomb, the Hiroshima bomb. And for the 20% who don't know, Quint is just this, like, archetypal fisherman. He's actually a shark hunter that the town hires to kill the shark. And he's motivated by, what a coincidence, having been, you know, the fictional survivor of what is a real-world event, what what's alleged to be the worst instance of shark attacks in human history, the sinking of the USS Indianapolis in World War II. Sometimes that shark, he looks right into you. Right into your eyes. You know the thing about a shark? He's got lifeless eyes. Black eyes, like a doll's eyes. When he comes at you, he doesn't seem to be living until he bites you. And those black eyes roll over white, and then... Oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red, and... Despite all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in and they rip you to pieces. This, like Jaws generally, but then Captain Quint specifically, is is sort of our original American shark story. Like the story is that sharks are scary, they want to eat us, and, and that we need to take action in order to keep ourselves safe. But in the years since Jaws, another shark story has been taking hold. So... Uh, do you know the story of the author of the of the novel Jaws? Uh, I, no, I know it's Peter Benchley. Peter Benchley, uh, East Coaster. Before writing fiction, he was a journalist. He was a speechwriter for LBJ, and after writing Jaws, he was filled with regret, and he wound up devoting the rest of his life to ocean conservation. And actually, here he is in 2004. He's being interviewed uh, two years before he died. So is that true? You feel like you couldn't write that novel now, Jaws, knowing what you know? No. I've uh, got to remember how long ago that was. There was no Earth Day when I was <laughs> writing that book. There was no environmental consciousness at all. The book actually came out after the first Earth Day, but eventually says he started thinking about it well before then. He wrote at one point, No, the shark in an updated Jaws could not be the villain. It would have to be written as the victim, for worldwide, sharks are much more the oppressed than the oppressors. Now, we don't still know a great deal, but what we do know, you certainly couldn't, I couldn't demonize the animal. Every year, tens or even hundreds of millions of sharks are killed, many for consumption, for their, for their fins at least, but others just for sport in these macho shark fishing tournaments. And 17% of all shark species are endangered or vulnerable. And Benchley became racked with guilt that he had made this worse and started pushing for a new narrative. Jaws was famously shot on Martha's Vineyard, 
And Martha's Vineyard, for those who don't know, is an island just off of Cape Cod. Uh, and when it came out, there was this fear that the movie was such a smash hit that it would scare people away from the Cape because because they were associated it now with sharks. But of course, that is not what happened. The original Jaws in 1975 was a huge hit here in Chatham for obvious reasons. So that's Kevin McLean. He runs a local independent movie theater in Chatham, uh, which is out on the Cape, sort of the heel of the Cape. Uh, and they had a movie theater that was turned into a CVS for a while, but in 2013 they reopened it. It's called the Chatham Orpheum. And of course, everybody in town, their first thing was, you got to show Jaws. The first movie has to be Jaws. You know, that has to be the first movie. It's kind of the quintessential Chatham movie. It, when you wander around downtown Chatham right now, it's bananas. There's, there's shark stuff for sale everywhere. The tourist shops, the gas stations. There's shirts with, like, shark bites out of them. There are hats with shark bites out of them. There are little plush sharks. It's it's kind of become the mascot. And in the Chatamorphium, they have screenings of Jaws all summer long, and Kevin says they almost all sell out. And some of them are like, they're like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, where the audience is, like, shouting their favorite lines. And there's this one scene where where Quint uh, crushes a beer can, and, and, like, people buy Narragansett beers, and they crush them at that moment uh, during that scene. I love it. <laughs> people start emailing me in April and May, you know, we're coming to Chatham in August. We want to know when the Jaws screenings are. People friggin' love the sharks. You know, there's a great line in the movie where they're standing in the middle of the street and he says, you know, if you yell shark on the 4th of July, we're going to have a stampede on our hands. People are going to run from the beach. But what's happened is that it sparked a curiosity for sharks. It was an inspiration for people. And so what I always tell people, you know, that was back in 1975. Absolutely. In right now, you yell shark, they run to the beach. So to me, this is a hypothesis, right? Like, you know, back in the 80s in particular, when when they started to sell the shark memorabilia, they were thinking about the idea of a shark. But now we stopped killing the seals and the seals came back amazingly fast. This is Andrea again. They came from somewhere. They rebounded because they were able to recolonize, and they came from Sable Island. So, Pete, can you are you at your computer right now? Yeah. Can you pull up a Google Map uh, tab? Yes. Okay, Google Google Sable Island. Okay. Tell me what you see. I see a uh, like a half moon crescent, like like the thinnest sliver of a moon, but it's an island in the ocean. And and scroll out. See, tell me how far it is from stuff. Uh, it is. 10 scrolls out. <laughs> wow. It's way out. Sable Island is a very weird place. So it's tiny. As you said, it's 12 square miles. I mean, it's barely in Canadian waters. Hmm. And Sable Island has 400,000 seals on it. Whoa. Uh, and also, randomly, 500 feral horses. <laughs> How did the horses get there? We only got time for one species in this podcast, Pete. Now, seals, seals are not migratory, they, but they do disperse, which means if there's some place that's crowded, like, say, a tiny half-moon sliver way out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, they do try to find someplace new. And, and what we know is that some of the seals that wound up repopulating Cape Cod and the islands came from Sable Island because, because some of the scientists would actually brand the seals that were up there with numbers to keep track of them. Um, there were people paying attention here on Cape Cod and noticed that one of these branded animals was on Nantucket. 
And so people started noticing these, these animals coming back. So the bounty ends in 62. By the 90s, there's some seals pupping again on the Cape and Islands. And, and today, counting both harbor and gray seals, we're up to somewhere between like 100 to maybe 110,000 uh, out on the Cape. Wow. And, and with the seals came the sharks, which means that we now get to test Kevin's hypothesis, this idea that if you yell shark, people run to the beach and not away. Hey, man. I'm rolling. So I want to introduce you to... Um, you introduce yourself? Captain Darren. Uh, Captain Darren Saletta, Mono White Sport Fishing. What's your boat's name? Rising Sun. He's a charter boat captain. Uh, tell me, just tell me about your business. What do you do and, and how do you make a living? I run uh, primarily fishing charters and eco-tours. Uh, we do uh, a combination of fishing charters, whale watching, and we do great white shark tours as well. Great white shark tours. Hmm. So we work with a private spotter plane. And then yeah, the spotter plane locates the sharks, puts us on them, and we can get up you know, to, at a safe distance of the shark so we're not bothering the shark, but you get a good view depending on the clarity of the water. So, Pete, how much would you pay to go see a great white shark? How long is the tour? Two hours. Two hours. Uh, I would pay $40. You're hiring the boat and an airplane. Yeah. It makes it a little bit pricey, but uh, uh, the trip is $1,400. It's about a two to two and a half hour trip. Wow. $1,400, sir. Wow. How uh, popular is that business? It's, it's a product in high demand. So, so how this works, they hire this, this plane. I did not know this. This is a whole side hustle for anyone who's got a Cessna and a pilot's license, is you can be a fish spotter. Hmm. And the, the primary duty of a fish spotter is to find big swordfish and tuna for those fishermen for whom landing a single fish can be worth thousands of dollars. But in this instance, uh, their job is to go and look at sharks. And actually, I actually spoke with one of these fish spotters. Uh, his name's Wayne Davis. How high are you flying, and how, and how do you spot a shark? Like, what's it look like from, uh, from the plane? looks like a shark. Uh, a dark gray body against a sandy bottom. Wayne, Wayne actually, though, as a, as a spotter, is mostly working for the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy, which is this nonprofit that popped up in 2012. Uh, it funds shark conservation and research and, and is currently working on a census that's trying to estimate the shark population uh, off the Cape. You know, at any beach, at any time, believe me, there can be a shark 100 feet away. And that's his takeaway, is that having been up there and looked down at the beaches... They are everywhere. You know, other than hunger, I'm not sure what what uh, makes them react to to a target. But I've just seen them swim by so many surfers and swimmers, and sometimes close. And it's made me aware that these aren't the, you know, the term man eater. It's it's one of the the dumbest things that was ever created. Outside just published a thing like a just sort of like you're you're usually much closer to a shark than you think. And it's like now that people like kite surfers are now putting GoPros up in their kites that like look back down at them in the water. And like the number of sharks just sort of following them and watching them. It seems like every other week there's someone in like Monterey, California, and the the police helicopter is like above them on the megaphone saying like, get out of the water. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's like as our ability to see into the ocean has increased, um, the, the number of 
the or the, the nearness of sharks is, is like just now becoming apparent. So the question is, if that's the reality, if there are sharks everywhere, if you know, if it's cold, dark, and sharky out there, what is the story that we're telling ourselves? Is is this Steven Spielberg's Jaws? Like this is scary, and we need to do something, or is this Peter Benchley's revised Jaws, where where the shark is the victim? And I I wanted an answer to that, so I went to a beach with a microphone. Can I get your names? Uh, Clive, Lona, Brent Baumgartner. I'm Amy Bailey. And and I asked folks. How they felt. Um, so had you heard about the, the situation with the sharks here on the Cape prior to arriving? No, not not before we got here. And obviously a lot of them are freaked out. Um, and what, what did that make you think? Um, we won't be getting in the water. <laughs> <laughs> you did go in, but not very far. <laughs> Basically, this side of the Cape, we stay out of the waters. You know, it's funny. I actually found a single public opinion poll uh, that kind of quantified this. Found a couple of things. 51% agree with the statement, I am absolutely terrified of sharks. <laughs> which, which I'm kind of like, yeah, duh. Um, but this surprised me. 38% of people say they're afraid to go into the water because of sharks. Hmm. I'd stay real close to shore. I don't yeah. think I'd go over my waist. But yeah, I would stay where I can touch at least. But when I was talking to folks down on the beach, the thing that was really surprising to me was the degree to which Peter Benchley's remake was what I was hearing from people. It, it, it's just, it's just nature. It, you've, you've got to, you've, you're, you're in their territory now, so you just got to know. Well, it's nature. You can't impede nature. I just think we just have to let nature take its course in that respect. The ocean is where they live, so you can't really tell them where to go. It does not bother us. And I, I think the poll bears this out. 82% of people say they agree that sharks perform a vital role for ecosystems, and 75% say they should only be hunted or killed if it's absolutely necessary. Seals eat the fish. Sharks eat the seals. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> it's their space, right? Yeah, 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 we're just here visiting. My conclusion after about a week of interviews down there was we're living in Jaws 2, the Jaws in which the shark is not the villain. Just as in Jaws, there's been a fatality now in the Cape. Last year, a 26-year-old kid from Brazil who was getting his master's in engineering up in Massachusetts was bitten and died while boogie boarding. But instead of the reaction that you see in the movie where the town hires a shark hunter to take revenge, I'm just hearing this narrative of ocean conservation from the lay public. Or at least that's what you get when you ask tourists on the beach. When you talk to folks who are out, in, and on the water a lot, it's a different story. To some, sharks are still out to get us. That's after a short break. At the top of the episode, we heard about Courtney DeWalter and Honey Stinger's athlete program, The Hive. And while Courtney might be one of the more extraordinary athletes in the program, it's full of all kinds of people. And you can hear about a lot of them on Honey Stinger's podcast, Hive Life. Welcome to episode three of Hive Life, a new podcast that tells inspiring stories from The Hive, Honey Stinger's remarkable community of athletes and adventurers. Hive Life is hosted by former Runner's World editor David Willey. And on each episode, he goes deep with athletes about their hard-won secrets of success, sometimes even while they're out training. Most runners know that conversations they have out on the roads and trails are different. They're better. 
There's something about being outdoors on the move with endorphins flooding our brains. We tend to be more open, honest, insightful, self-deprecating, and in the moment. In March, it's the kind of show that's really good at giving you a little inspiration to keep you going if you need it. You know, it's funny. Like It was the same type of feeling that I got after my first marathon, where I was just such like elated feeling like you could kind of just conquer the world <laughs> find um, hive life at honeystinger.com slash hive life or wherever you get your podcast all right if you google sharks on cape cod you'll see a lot of quotes a lot of op-eds a lot of news stories about folks who want something to be done about the sharks the original name of these creatures in the marine biology bibles that we use to educate marine biologists up until the 70s, their name was man-eater. Yeah, right. Correct? Yeah, that's right. And uh, that particular phrase or description has been struck uh, by the so-called conservationists. Um, but prior to that, they were called man-eaters. So that's John Cartsunis, who is a surfer who lives in Wellfleet, which is out on the outer cape towards the end of the, the hook. And he's involved with a group of local residents who launched something called um, Cape Cod Ocean Community. It was formed after the fatal attack that happened last year. And the central message is essentially, you have got to do something about this. September 15th was Cape Cod's 9-11. That was the day that changed everything here on Cape Cod. We lost our innocence. I interviewed this group. There are four of them all together. Uh, and some of the statistics that you hear about shark attacks that, you know, like you're more likely to be killed by heat stroke or lightning strikes or train crashes. There's actually even uh, a, a statistic that more people are killed each year being crushed by a vending machine than die from shark attacks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they hate these statistics. That's complete propaganda and more misinformation. If they took the sample of people that actually recreate in the water on Cape Cod and the amount of shark encounters, as uh, the Conservancy likes to call them, and spotted sharks and beach closures, if you take all of that, then the chances of someone being affected by sharks that are marauding our beaches are very, very high. And this is the misinformation that's spewed out there to basically hoodwink the public to say that, you know what, you're going to have more of a chance of getting into a car accident than getting bit by a shark. Yeah, if you live in Nebraska, I agree. But if you live in Wellfleet, they're completely wrong, and they're doing the public here a huge misservice. So if if they are, if this new narrative is that uh, sharks are actually dangerous, like what do they propose that, that people do about it? Well, so so for one, they're they're pushing for surveillance, right? There, there's a thing called clever buoy, uh, which is the sonar buoy that uses machine learning to to detect sharks uh, and and tell people if there's one in the water. And it's actually it's it's an Australian company. It's being piloted down in California, though. Uh, but essentially, so far, we don't even really know if the thing works. Like we don't we don't know if it's got false positives or false negatives. It they. And they and they kind of recognize that, like they think, let's just give it a try. So this is Drew Taylor. He's another surfer from Wellfleet. Do we have an obligation to put something in the water that we're not going to stand behind as far as this is, you know, 100% safe and guaranteed, but just use it as a pilot study. Use it as a study that 
as we're kind of starting to use as our little quote, better than nothing. And I think something along those lines could happen. The National Seashore is conducting a study right now of technological solutions to keep people informed about shark activity. It's actually expected out like any day now. Like I was hoping they would put it out before we put this story out. But surveillance is just the near-term goal for these folks. Long-term, they've got their sights set on the thing that's attracting the sharks. They've got their sights set on the seals. This is Chick Frody, who also has a house out on the Outer Cape. If somebody from outer space came down here and they saw our whole world, they wouldn't say, well, nature's here and the humans are here. They'd actually probably think we were part of nature. He says Cape Cod's fishermen knew that, and they did not feel conflicted about reshaping the ocean to better suit their needs. So yes, they called the seals, and that allowed the fishing industry to be really good here. And people say, well, that's their ocean, you know, we shouldn't be doing that. Well, that used to be our ocean until that was changed with a stroke of a pen in 1972. So these local residents have joined forces with an already existing constituency, commercial fishermen, who who have been calling for reform to the Marine Mammal Protection Act for a decade. And they want fewer seals. This again is Captain Darren, who, uh, yeah, he runs shark tours, but his primary business is fishing charters. And he's also a surfer. I, I think it really is going to come down to reducing the uh, the prey. But yeah, that's, it's obviously a concern for me. And and my son, and I, I want him to have the experience that I had growing up. And right now, it's certainly not a safe environment for anyone to be going in the water. They're, you know, anyone that thinks they can without a high risk of being preyed upon is, you know, brave or kidding themselves, one or the other. There have been calls by people who live on Cape Cod to return to the days of the seal bounty. There's historically been this desire to scapegoat seals. It's not new. Um, this has been happening through time. <laughs> um, you know, you go back to the 1800s when there was this perception that, you know, the fish were gone because of the seals. And part of that, I think, scapegoating is when, you know, you're angry at something or things have changed and you don't know where to put that anger or that frustration. And I see that almost every day with the seals. That's Andrea again, the seal researcher. She agrees that seals eat a lot of fish. Nobody would deny that. But she says that the reason fisheries declined was overfishing, not seals. And I think, I think what I'm arguing here is that sharks now have this whole architecture of conservation that's been working to rehab their image. And so it's not terribly popular to hate on the sharks. And so the anger just kind of moves down the food chain and it lands on this other creature that is more common and historically has just been like a receptacle for the dislike of ocean communities. It's, it's landed back on the seals. That's interesting. It's like we can't be angry at the sharks anymore because we know how important they are. Right, and how endangered they are. And so you're saying calling for killing sharks is going to mean backlash, but you've already got the fishermen who are calling for fewer seals. So killing the seals is actually the path of least resistance. Yeah, but I think I think the real question here is how would that work? Andrea thinks that if you wanted the sharks to actually leave, you'd have to kill a lot of seals. You would have to eliminate pretty much every pup you could, every adult you could, and which is why the bounties were successful back in the 1880s, 1962. There was this effort to do that at every single location. You'd basically have to call them down to zero again. And that is ultimately a political question. Like, you've got a whole legal framework that is going to have to change if we want to, to move the, the needle here. 
which is why I called uh, Bill Keating. Congressman? Yes. You should be on with Sam. Sam, are you there? I am here. Okay. So this is a call with Bill Keating. He's on his cell phone. He's the congressman for Cape Cod. And I figured that if anyone's going to be on board for this, it would be someone in his position because, you know, surfers and fishermen aside, tourism to the Cape is the goose that lays the golden egg, right? And sharks might threaten that. But even Bill Keating is not on board with this idea. It would be a non-starter because the scientific evidence is clearly saying right now it wouldn't do any good. Like, just imagine the shit show it would be. Like, you've got to convince not just, uh, like, surfers and bathers and environmentalists in New England that it's in their best interest to cull seals, but you're going to need congressmen from the West Coast voting for a bill that's about killing seals, right? Yeah. Like, this is just not an easy political fight to, to take up. So it's like, here we are, right? Like, it doesn't seem like anything's going to change. Like, the sharks are back on Cape Cod, and that's just the new reality. Hmm. And they're and they're protected because the thing they eat is very cute, <laughs> very charismatic. Exactly. So now what they're doing? I mean, they're stocking lifeguard stations with tourniquets. They've like sprinkled landlines along the beach in spots where cell service is bad, and they've got these great big terrifying signs everywhere uh, warning about sharks. Uh, and you know, it's crazy. Like, the whole region is just buzzing. Every time a beach is closed, it's in the news. Uh, every public meeting that someone's talking about, the response to the sharks is just swarmed with reporters. And it's bananas. It's a circus. It's a total circus. I have a friend who's a surfer in New England, and he has an app called Sharktivity. Yeah, that's that was made by the, the White Shark Conservancy. Well, so he looks at it before he goes surfing. And what he does is he goes to a beach that doesn't have any sharks at it or like any <laughs> reported shark sightings. Yeah. And uh, it took him about two trips to realize that the reason that these beaches don't have any reported sharks is that there's just no people there. Yes, exactly. Because after on his second trip or something like that, a shark showed up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is, which sort of gets you to it. It's like so far every measure we have is imperfect. Yeah. Right. And so and so my question was sort of like, like I just felt like I wanted to point out this this fact that that I feel like is very rarely pointed out in stories about sharks in Cape Cod, which is that if you look, so there's this thing, the International Shark Attack File keeps track of every confirmed, unprovoked. <laughs> Shark attack. Unprovoked shark attacks? Is there such a thing as a provoked shark attack? A provoked shark attack would be, for instance, if you were to catch a shark, bring it into your fishing boat, and then it bit you. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Okay. So they distinguish. Right, right. And over the last 20 years, on the whole East Coast, there have been three bites. Three people have been bitten by a great white shark. One of those was fatal. And on the West Coast, in that same period, over the past 20 years, there have been 34, and four of those were fatal. Hmm. And it's just like, why is this a news story every time someone sees a shark on Cape Cod? I called up the shark attack file, and I talked to Tyler Bowling, who manages the data set. He's down at the Florida Museum of Natural History. On the West Coast, it seems like there's greater risk, but... But there isn't this outcry, and East Coast there is, and and like I, them be, just being used to it, I guess I like I guess that's true. I think it's just I, I, there's 
more of a surfing culture over there, so they're they're exposed to it more. And if you talk to these surfers, the majority of the time, they're like, yeah, we see them all the time. We know they're there. We know the risk. It's I'm still going out. And then you talk to these guys who get bit, and they're like, yeah, I'll be about as soon as I'm out of the cast. They just accept the risk, and they're more aware of it. And I think that um, it just seems like the Cape Cod area, and uh, it's just, I don't want to say the word ignorant, but they were... Uh, just sort of blissfully unaware and, and suddenly the sharks were kind of more prevalent and, and it was a little scary. Well, sure, that's an awfully easy answer. It's funny, I, I wanted to talk to surfers out on the Cape, uh, but the surf was terrible while I was there and, and I would wander into surf shops and as soon as I walked in, they would just like, <laughs> one literally as soon as I walked in with my microphone and I said I was working on a shark story the guy just said go away <laughs> uh, <laughs> and there were a few of them I just hung around and I pestered and I turned the microphone off and they would chat with me for a few minutes and and one of them sort of told me offhandedly that like no one wants to talk to you because no one wants to be the shop that says it's okay to go back in the water and then like somebody gets bit but but clearly like that's what a lot of surfers already think. So, so when I was out on the beach just talking to tourists, there was one woman who I was immediately like, ah, yes, you're a fellow traveler. <laughs> My name is Amy Chambers. Where are you from? Uh, I grew up here, and I currently live in Vermont. It was like Patagonia gear, sweet beach tent set up, uh, very engaged in the conversation right away. She is a boogie boarder and surfs a little bit. Mm-hmm. What do you make of the whole shark thing, the whole shark zeitgeist? Yeah, it's it's really interesting that you ask because I've, I've been thinking about it a lot, but it hasn't swayed my decision to get into the water until yesterday. I got in, but a seal had uh, just swam by that had gotten bit. But previously, the lifeguards... So scarred. Scarred, yeah, but it was a big old gash. Like, it looked bad, but he seemed to be doing fine. And it was the first time that I questioned getting in the water, ever. But but did you, when you say you questioned, did you change your your decision? Or were you just sort of like, uh? I still went in, but there was a moment where the tide was changing and there was this really deep spot and I just, I found another spot to go. <laughs> but I still went in. I do other things that are dangerous. I go skiing, I drive, I fly in planes, so I... It seems to me that this is on the list and maybe a little bit more of a known factor, but um, I'm still going to go swimming. I think it'd be really cool to see a shark. I just don't want to be right next to it when it pops up, honestly, like and have it mistake me in my wetsuit for a seal. And honestly, there have been reactions on the extremes. Folks saying they'll never go in the water again. Folks calling for the killing of sharks or seals. And you know, like, it's possible that Cape Cod may be about to become some sort of global shark attack hotspot and and prove me wrong. But I think for now, behind the hype and sensationalism, most of the people out on the beach are in a different place today than when Jaws first came out. Most of us are a little concerned, but also just kind of mesmerized.
that's Sam Evans-Brown, host of Outside In. This episode was produced by Sam and me, Peter Frickwright, with help from Jimmy Gutierrez, Hannah McCarthy, Justine Paradise, Taylor Quimby, Mike Roberts, and Erica Janik. Music by Robbie Carver and some Blue Dot Sessions. This episode is brought to you by Honey Stinger, making fuel for athletes of all kinds using delicious honey and organic ingredients. Find them at honeystinger.com slash hivelife. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX. We'll be back next week. 